Today's Bible reading will be coming from John 14, verse 1 to 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you what I, that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that also you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the word of God. My name is Adam. I'm the lead pastor here and it's so great to have you with us. We're in week three of a sermon series that we've called Untroubled Hearts. We're looking at the final words of Jesus to his disciples. It's the night before his crucifixion and Jesus knows what is coming. So he gathers with his disciples. He shares a meal with them. He instructs them. And as we'll see today, he comforts them. Now, I wonder, when you feel troubled, what brings you comfort? Might be a nice cup of tea, might be a whole block of chocolate, it might be exercising or listening to music, it might be a hug from a loved one. Whatever it is, today we're going to be looking at Jesus' solution for our troubled hearts. This is what he says in verse 1 to the disciples. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, why were the hearts of the disciples troubled? Well, remember last week, Jesus had just told them that one of them will betray him. Jesus has just told them that Peter, one of their unofficial leaders, will disown Jesus three times. And most troubling of all, Jesus has just told them that he is leaving them and they cannot follow. Their whole world has been turned upside down. I mean, put yourself in their sandals, the one that you left everything to follow, the one that you've been learning from and listening to for three years, the one that you thought was the Messiah who would solve all your problems. He tells you he is leaving and you can't go with him. The disciples were feeling confused, disappointed, let down, even betrayed. 
their hearts were troubled. Now, maybe you've been there before. In fact, if you've lived long enough, I'm certain that you've been there before. You've gone through something that left you feeling confused, disappointed, let down, betrayed. It might have been in a relationship with someone else. It might have been in your relationship with God, like the disciples here. And maybe you felt like a a bad Christian for feeling that way. Maybe you felt as if someone with stronger faith, they wouldn't experience these doubts and these questions. They wouldn't experience these kinds of troubles. But do you remember what we read about Jesus last week? After Jesus told the disciples that one of them will betray him. We read in verse 21 of chapter 13, Jesus was troubled in spirit. In other words, Jesus himself was troubled on the very same night. Now this tells us that it's not wrong to be troubled. That it's not unchristian to experience fear, to be confused or anxious, to wrestle with doubt, to be disappointed or depressed. It's okay to admit that we feel these things. It's okay that we experience these things. But God does not want us to be derailed by these things. God knows that we will experience trouble in this life, but God does not want these troubles to take us out. And this is why Jesus is not rebuking the disciples in this verse. He's not saying to them, don't you ever be troubled. No, Jesus is redirecting their attention. He's pointing them to the solution for their troubles. He's saying to them, when troubles come, This is what you must do. This is what you must remember. This is where you must turn. Now, before we look at Jesus' answer, let's just admit that this is a message for all of us. All of us experience troubles in this life, whether you're a Christian or not. I mean, just this week, I tried to be more aware of those things that trouble my heart. And so there's all the usual things like taking care of my family, Am I doing the right things as a dad, as a husband? How am I doing as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor? And then there are other troubles like friends and family members who are not well, relationships that need reconciliation, worries about the future. I mean, what's the future going to look like in a post-COVID-19 world? For me, for my kids, for us as a church, I'm just not sure. And so if you are anything like me, if your life is anything like mine, you can and you will experience troubles. And the question is, what do we do with them? How do we deal with them? Today, we'll be looking at Jesus' solution to our troubled hearts. And he gives it to us right up front in verse 1. This is what he says. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, did you catch what Jesus is saying here? This is a massive claim from Jesus. He puts himself on par with God. He essentially says, you believe in God, that's good. Believe in me in the same way. This is an incredible claim. Jesus is claiming to be equal with the Father. And this is why he says, the answer to our troubled hearts is to trust in him. Now, maybe you're thinking, yeah, I get that, but why? Why should I put my trust in Jesus? 
Yes, he claims to be God among us, but what reasons does he give us to trust him? How will it give me peace if I put my trust in Jesus? Well, Jesus actually goes on in this passage to give us three reasons why we should trust him. He tells us that if we trust in him, we will receive three things. Firstly, we will receive a secure future, verses 2 to 3. Secondly, a clear path, verses 4 to 11. And then thirdly, a present promise, verses 12 to 14. Let's look at those three things. Firstly, a secure future. A secure future. This is what Jesus says in verse 2. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Now here, Jesus tells the disciples and us where he is going. And it is to my father's house. Now most commentators agree that this is a reference to heaven. To the very dwelling place of God. What comes into your mind when you think about heaven? Maybe it's a mansion on the clouds. And if it is, this verse is probably to blame. Or at least the King James translation of this verse, which says, In my Father's house are many mansions. Now that's nice, but aside from the fact that it's a ridiculous image that a mansion can fit in a house, this is just not an accurate translation. The word that is translated there is mansions. It does not mean a luxurious or lavish house. It simply means a dwelling place, an abode, a place to live. And so Jesus' point in this verse is not to describe for us the luxury of the Father's house. Jesus' point is to describe the roominess of the Father's house. There are many rooms. There is plenty of room in the presence of God. There is room for you and there is room for whoever will come. In other words, heaven is not like the hotel room that I stayed in in London many years ago, which wasn't really a room, but more like a cupboard with a smaller cupboard that was a bathroom. Now, heaven is more like the house I stayed in in Monterey, California a few years ago. I was there at a church uh, attending a conference and the church graciously put us up with a, a family that attended the church. And this house was and is to this day the biggest house I've ever been in. I mean, I did not just have my own room, I had my own wing. There were rooms upon rooms upon rooms. And this is kind of a a picture of heaven. There is plenty of room in the presence of God. Now, how do we know this to be true? How can we be sure? Well, Jesus says to us that he is going there or he is going to prepare a place for us. Now, what does this mean? Is Jesus kind of telling us about his renovation plans? I mean, he was a carpenter after all. Is Jesus telling us he's going to heaven to do some DIY, knock down some walls, lay some concrete, build some more rooms? That's kind of what I pictured when I was growing up. Jesus hard at work in heaven with the tools, and then you know, someone else puts their trust in him and becomes a Christian. He thinks, all right, got to build another room. That's not his point. That's not what he means. I mean, how does Jesus prepare a place for us in heaven? Think about where Jesus is going. Think about where we are in the story. It's the night before his crucifixion. Jesus is going to the cross. 
Because it's on the cross that he prepares a place for us in heaven. Because it's on the cross that Jesus pays for our sin and purchases our salvation. Opens up the way for us to enter into the presence of God. Jesus has made a way for us to come home to God and there is plenty of space for you and for me. But if that wasn't enough, Jesus also says to the disciples and to us that he will come back for us. He is going to prepare a place for us and he will come back for us. That's what he says in verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now this is referring to the second coming of Jesus. And you can see why this would have brought comfort to the disciples. They're worried about Jesus leaving, but Jesus assures them that he is coming back. And the hope of the disciples is our hope as well. I mean, we live in days of struggle and battle and hardship, but we fight and we persevere and we don't give up because we know that our king is coming back. It kind of reminds me of a scene from The Lord of the Rings. I'm a bit of a nerd and so I'm rereading the books at the moment and I'm up to the second book, The Two Towers. And there's a scene in this book where Gandalf, who is like the leader of the good guys, he tells the army to go and to fight the enemy at a place called Helm's Deep. But before the battle, Gandalf tells them that he won't be going with them, that he has to leave. But he makes the promise that he will return on the third day at dawn. Now, as the battle rages on and as things look hopeless, the army begins to lose faith in Gandalf. But sure enough, on the third day at dawn, Gandalf arrives with reinforcements and they sweep the battlefield of all their evil enemies. And this is kind of a picture of our hope, of the return of Christ, that King Jesus will return to vanquish evil and to bring us to himself. That's what he says there in verse 3. He says, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. I mean, notice how Jesus describes heaven. He doesn't say, I will come back and I will take you to your mansion. Nor does he say, I'll come back and I'll take you and plonk you on a cloud with a diaper and a harp. No, he says, I will take you to be with me, to be where I am. Heaven is to be with me. Jesus. Now there's a great hymn uh, by a man named Fernando Ortega. It's called Give Me Jesus. Now the words of this hymn are very simple, but they're very profound. He says, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. And when I am alone, give me Jesus. And when I come to die, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. The ultimate Christian hope is Christ. The ultimate Christian hope is, is not the end of suffering, the eradication of evil, the promise of eternal joy. Those are all good things and they're all true. But the ultimate Christian hope is Christ. Think about it this way. Imagine I get home tonight and I, I walk through the door and the house is clean from top to bottom. My slippers are waiting for me there at the front door. There's a steak dinner waiting on the kitchen bench with a nice cold beverage beside it. The footy's on the TV and the game's about to start. But Molly and the kids are nowhere to be seen. I can't get in touch with them. I don't know where they are. Would I be happy with that? Would I be content? And the answer is, of course not, because with all the comforts in the world, they're nothing if I can't be with my family. 
And it's the same for the Christian. All the pleasures in the world mean nothing apart from Christ. It's like that other hymn, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. If you're a Christian, when you go through troubles, remember this, that Jesus has given you a secure future. He has gone to prepare a place for you on the cross and he is coming back to bring you to be with him. But not only that, we see in verses 4 to 11 that we can have untroubled hearts because Jesus gives us, firstly, a secure future and secondly, a clear path. In verse 4, Jesus assures the disciples and he says to them, you know the place where I am going. Now, Jesus is saying to them, after all that I've told you, after all that I've taught you, you know that I'm going the way of the cross, that I'm going to be lifted up, that I will be crucified. But the disciples don't actually get it, and it's Thomas who speaks up. Thomas said to him, verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Now, this might be the only time in recorded history that a man admits he needs directions. Now, it's, it's easy to kind of look down on the disciples, isn't it? But I don't think we would have done any better. At least I wouldn't have. And I'm actually so glad that Thomas asked this question because he inadvertently asked the most important question in the world and he gets the most astonishing answer in the world. He essentially asks, what is the way to God? How can we find our way to God? And Jesus responds in verse 6, I and the way, and the truth, and the life. Thomas wants directions, and Jesus says, you just need me. Now, I said this was an astonishing answer, because think about what's about to happen. The one who claimed to be the way is about to go the way of the cross and die the death of a criminal. The one who claimed to be the truth, he was rarely believed during his life and is about to be condemned by lying witnesses. And the one who claimed to be the life, well, his lifeless corpse was about to be placed in a tomb. And yet it's actually because of these events that Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life. It's because Jesus went the way of the cross that we can find our way home to God that we can know the truth of God's love and that we can receive eternal life with God. I mean, this is astonishing. It tells us that God has come from heaven to earth, not to give us advice, not to offer directions, but to give himself. It tells us the message of Jesus is not go that way, but come to me. It tells us Christianity is not a path or a system, but a person. And notice that it's also exclusive. Jesus does not say, I am a way, a truth, or a life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life. He makes his point very clear at the end of verse 6. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, let's be honest, this is one of the most offensive things Jesus could say, especially in our day and age. I mean, people don't mind when Jesus talks about caring for the poor or or loving your neighbor, but this, to many people, is just too narrow, too exclusive, 
too absolute. It seems intolerant. It seems cruel. But I would argue that it is actually incredibly loving because Jesus is being honest with us. I mean, imagine that you go bushwalking and you get hopelessly lost. You have no idea where you are. You have no food or drink. You're wandering around for hours. It's starting to get dark. It's not looking good. Then suddenly someone from search and rescue appears. They find you and they tell you they know the way to go. They can lead you back home. Now, would you say to that person, don't you dare tell me what to do. Don't you be so arrogant. Of course you wouldn't. Because they're not being cruel, they're being loving. What would actually be cruel is if they showed up, they knew the way home, and they didn't tell you. They said to you, well, you just do whatever feels right for you. You just follow whatever path your heart tells you to follow. You would say to them, no, tell me the way home. Tell me where I've got to go. And the claim of Christianity is that in Jesus, God has shown up in human history. And not just to give directions and kind of wish us all the best, but to take us in his arms and to bring us home. Now all of this means that Jesus is both exclusive and inclusive. Jesus is exclusive because he is the one and only way to God. But Jesus is inclusive because he is the one and only way to God for every single person. No one is excluded. Everyone is invited. Jesus is the clear path home to God. And not only that, it goes even deeper because Jesus is also the picture of God, the revelation of God. Jesus shows us who God is and what God is like. In verse 8, Philip asks something that many people have asked throughout history. He asks to see God. Verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. In other words, if God would just rip open the clouds and reveal himself to us, then that would settle the matter. We'd believe in him. We'd know he exists. Now, you can almost hear the exasperation in Jesus' answer. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Now, there's a warning there, isn't there, that we can be around Jesus for a long time but not really know Jesus. Jesus goes on, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is saying, Philip, showing you the Father, that's what I've been doing this whole time. You want to see God? You're looking at him. Now, it's important that we understand that Jesus, the Son, and God, the Father, are different persons. They're not the same person. They're unique persons within the Godhead. But Jesus' point is that they are so totally united that to see the Son is to see the Father. To know Jesus is to know God. To hear Jesus' words is to hear the words of God. To see the works of Jesus is to see the works of God. In the words of another New Testament passage, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It makes me think of a story that I've shared with you once before about Christina, a young woman who was raised in a town just outside Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Now, Christina always longed to experience the, the party atmosphere of that famous city, but her mother warned her, her not to do it 
Unemployment in the city was high and really the only places that offered employment to young women were strip joints and brothels. But Christina didn't listen. She packed her bags and she secretly took off to the city. Now terrified for her daughter, Christina's mother went to find her. She searched the city in vain. Fearing the worst, she visited some of Rio's sleaziest establishments. And on the walls of those places, she pinned a photo of herself. And on the back of those photos, she wrote a note to her daughter. She returned home without Christina, totally devastated. Now, Christina had ended up employed by a a brothel in Rio, and one day she stumbled down the staircase and she saw a photo of her mother on the wall. Picking it up, she noticed that there was her mother's writing on the back and she turned it over and she read this. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, please just come home. And she did. And Jesus Christ is like the photo of God in our world. He shows us what God is like and his message to us is whatever you have done, whatever you have become, please come home home. See, Jesus is the clear path to God, and he is a path paved with grace. We can have untroubled hearts in this world if we put our trust in Jesus, because he gives us a secure future, he gives us a clear path, and thirdly and finally, he gives us a present promise. A present promise. In verses 12 to 14, Jesus actually makes two promises. Now on the surface, they seem a little bit confusing, but they can actually fill us with hope and with joy. The first promise is in verse 12, where Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, in other words, listen up. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Now, Jesus says the person who believes in him will do greater things than what Jesus has been doing. Now, maybe you're like me and you think, what the heck? I mean, what is Jesus talking about? What could this possibly mean? What could possibly be greater than what Jesus did? He healed people. He walked on water. He turned water into wine, which is a pretty great thing to be able to do. He even raised people from the dead. And so this means Jesus can't be saying that we will outperform him, that we will have a more powerful or more spectacular ministry than him. I mean, not even the miracles of the apostles in the book of Acts can top all that Jesus did. So if greater does not mean more spectacular, what does it mean? The key is in the phrase at the end of verse 12 when Jesus says, these things will happen because I am going to the Father. Now, throughout this whole section, Jesus is making the promise that after his death, after his resurrection and his return to the Father, he will give the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will empower all believers to share his message in all corners of the globe. This is what we see happen in the book of Acts, where we certainly see lots of spectacular miracles, but the greater narrative is the spread of the church. It's the thousands of people who come to receive Jesus. I mean, on the day of Pentecost alone, more people were added to the band of Jesus' followers than during his entire earthly life. And so the greater works that we do, they're not flashier miracles, they are the multiplication of his 
message. They are the spread of his church. I mean, during his earthly ministry, Jesus could only be in one place at one time. But now by his spirit and through his followers, millions of mouths can speak the words of Jesus. Millions of lives can show the love of Jesus all over the world and at the same time. Now what this means, if you are a follower of Jesus, it means you are part of the greater things that Jesus is doing in this world. And you don't have to do powerful, spectacular things. You just have to offer your ordinary, everyday life to God. The words you say, the work you do, the way you love, you ought to do it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory. So here's the question. Are you involved in these greater things? Are your words, your works, your hands, your mind, are you using them to be a witness to Jesus? Now you might be thinking, well, I don't even really know where to start. Well, Jesus goes on and he gives us perhaps the most simple yet the most important example of what we can be doing. Prayer. This is the second promise in verses 13 to 14. Jesus says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. Now this might sound like Jesus is promising to give us whatever we ask for if we just add in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers. But it's just not true. It's not true from our experience and it's not true to the meaning of this verse. I mean, to pray in Jesus' name is not a magical incantation. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray according to his will. It's kind of like if a lawyer is to represent you in court, they are to do things in your name. They are meant to do what you want. They are to represent your wishes. And when we pray in Jesus' name, we are to ask for things that Jesus wants to happen, for things that reflect his purposes and his desires. And what are Jesus' purposes and desires, what does Jesus want to happen? It's for more people to come to know the love of God through him. And this means when you pray for help to reach out to others with the love of God, that is a prayer that Jesus will answer. He will be with you and he will help you. And so Jesus turns to his troubled disciples. Jesus turns to you and to me. And he calls on us to trust him. To know that he has given us a secure future. To know that he has given us a clear path home. And that he is a very present help. So here's the question. Have you turned to Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus? Do you turn to him in your troubles? He has turned to you. He has done everything for you. And he says to you today, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have shown us what you are like in Jesus. Thank you that you have reached out to rescue us in Jesus. And thank you that we can have a certain hope and a secure future in Jesus. And Lord, we just want to take a few moments now to turn to you.
We want to admit where we are troubled and need comfort. We want to confess where we've turned to other things for comfort. We want to ask for your help to reach out to others with the love of God. And we want to, for some of us, Lord, respond to your invitation to come home. So, Lord, we just take these next few moments to pray in our hearts to to bring these things before you because you hear us and you answer our prayers. Father in heaven, thank you for all that you have done for us through the Lord Jesus. Fill us with your spirit now. Empower us by your spirit so that as we go into our world and our community and our circles, Lord, we might shine and show your love to others for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let me pray this blessing over you as we close from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.